Kirsten Downey is the author of The Woman, the Woman Behind the New Deal, which was a finalist for the 2009 Los Angeles Times Book Prize. She studied journalism at Pennsylvania State University and then wrote for newspapers in Florida, Colorado, and California. In 2000, Ms. Downey was awarded a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard University, where she studied American economic history at Harvard Business School and participated in the Harvard Trade Union Program. She was one of the writers of the New York Times bestselling Report of Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission, which was previously a staff and was previously a staff writer at the Washington Post where she shared in the 2008 Pulitzer Prize for its coverage on the Virginia Tech shootings. She's currently an editor, excuse me, currently a managing editor of FTC Watch, a newsletter which follows the Federal Trade Commission and the Antitrust Division of the Justice Department. Today, Ms. Downey will speak to us about her new book, Isabella the Warrior Queen. Let us give her a warm welcome. Well, hello, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. I am always thrilled to get to come back to Boston for any reason at all. I was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard in 2000 and 2001, and the year that I lived in Boston, I think, was the happiest time of my life. I did much of the research for my first book, um, my biography of Frances Perkins, The Woman Behind the New Deal, here in Boston. And um, I was very pleased to hear you point out where the emergency exits are because uh, fire safety uh, awareness was a very important part of what Frances Perkins accomplished in her life. So she continues to have a presence in our lives, just as Isabella does. Now, there's another interesting tie between Boston and my newest topic, and that's that a lot of the really interesting uh, research and writing about Isabella was done here in the United States, actually, in the early 1800s by William Hickling Prescott. And I referred to his work frequently while I was writing my own book. Now, the life of Isabella. This is a huge topic. It's historic, the legacy, the aftermath of her life is present in today's news each and every day. It's present in the continuing clash between Islam and Christianity. So we have a lot to cover today. What I thought I'd do is start with a couple preliminary thoughts that I'd like you to sort of mull over while I talk. Um, then I'm going to tell you a little bit about how I came to write the book. Then I want to show you some nice maps and pictures that will help you put all this in context. And I want to leave a lot of time for questions and answers. It's one of the things about Isabella is that she's incredibly controversial topic. It's provocative, and you're likely to have a lot of questions as we go along. So um, the first point I wanted you to, to mention to you and that I'd like you to mull over is this concept. Up until about 250 years ago, there was no concept of a separation of church and state. And in fact, in much of the world today, there's still no separation between church and state. In fact, in most of the Western world, there was no separation of church and state. And much of what Isabella did is understandable 
not excusable, but understandable when we think about religion and politics from her perspective, that the government is the church and the church is the government. She felt it was her duty to defend and promote the church as much as it was to defend and promote the interests of uh, Spain. And those of you who are, uh, have thought about this also from the context of Massachusetts history will know that for the first hundred years of Massachusetts history, there was no separation of church and state either. And the Virginians like to point out with great pride that they bested Massachusetts on that front by developing the concept. Uh, Madison and Thomas Jefferson, in fact, um, specifically argued for protection uh, for religion in the Bill of Rights, um, and they thought about the Spanish Inquisition specifically at the time they put that into the Bill of Rights. So uh, let me start here. In a castle on a steep promontory overlooking the windswept plains of north-central Spain, a slender red-haired princess finalized the plans for a ceremony that was likely to throw her nation, already teetering toward anarchy, into full-fledged civil war. Her name was Isabella, and she had just learned that her older brother, Enrique, King Enrique, known as Enrique el Impotente, which symbolized his failings, both administrative and sexual, had died. King Enrique's lascivious young wife, who had occupied her time bestowing her favors on the other gentlemen of the court, had produced a child, but many people doubted that the king was actually the child's father. Isabella had decided to end the controversy over the succession by having herself crowned queen instead. The 23-year-old woman was essentially orchestrating a coup. No woman had ruled the combined kingdoms of Castile and Leon, the largest single realm on the Iberian Peninsula, in more than 200 years. In many European countries, it was illegal for a woman to rule alone. On the rare occasions when women reigned, it was usually as regent for a son who was too young to govern. Isabella had a husband, Ferdinand, who was heir to the neighboring kingdom of Aragon, but he had been traveling when the news of Enrique's death arrived, and she had decided to seize the initiative. She would take the crown for herself alone. On that bitter cold morning in December 1474, Isabella added the finishing touches to an ensemble intentionally designed to impress onlookers with her splendor and her regal grandeur. She donned an elegant gown encrusted with jewels, a dark red ruby glittered at her throat. Observers already awed by the pageantry now gasped at an additional sight. On Isabella's orders, a court official walked ahead of her horse, holding aloft an unsheathed sword, the naked blade pointing upward toward the zenith in an ancient symbol of the right to enforce justice. It was a dramatic warning gesture, symbolizing Isabella's intent to take power and to use it forcefully. Acknowledging nothing out of the ordinary, Isabella took a seat on an improvised platform in the square. A silver crown was placed upon her head as the crowd cheered, Isabella was proclaimed queen. Afterwards, she proceeded to Segovia's cathedral. She prostrated herself in prayer before the altar, 
offering her thanks and imploring God to help her to rule, to rule wisely and well. She viewed the tasks ahead as titanic. She believed Christianity was in mortal danger. The Ottoman Turks were aggressively on the march in Eastern and Southern Europe. The Muslims retained an entrenched foothold in the Andalusian Kingdom of Granada, which Isabel and others feared would provide a beachhead into the rest of Spain. A succession of popes had pleaded in vain for a steely-eyed commander, a stalwart warrior, to step forward to counter the threat. Instead, it was a young woman, the mother of a young daughter, who was taking up the banner. The means she used were effective but brutal. For centuries to come, historians would debate the meaning of her life. Was she a saint or was she satanic? As she stood in the sun in Segovia that winter afternoon, however, she showed no trace of fear or hesitation. Inspired by the example of Joan of Arc, who had died just two decades before Isabella was born and whose stories were much repeated during her childhood, Isabella similarly began to fashion herself as a religious icon. Inwardly infused with a sense of her own destiny, a faith that was fervent, mystical, and intense, Isabella was confident to her core that God was on her side and that he intended her to rule. The questioning would only come much later. Uh, people often ask writers how long they spent writing a book. Um, I got the contract for the book from Random House in 2010. But in a sense, I've been writing this book all my life. Uh, my father was a ship captain. He went to the Merchant Marine Academy at Kings Point, and then he went to sea. My mother and I would travel wherever his ships came into port, uh, so we traveled a lot. And I remember when I was first exposed to the significance of the Spanish Empire. I was six years old. We went to St. Augustine in, in Florida, and it was there that I saw my first Spanish fortress, the Castillo de San Marcos. Have many people here been to see St. Augustine? It's very interesting. Um, I was fascinated by the architecture and also what it represented. Now, I was very young, um, but it still made a huge impression on me. I was amazed by how thick the walls were, how fearful they were. Um, I was interested that their cannons were facing outward to the sea. Um, I was amazed that people lived in such tiny little cubicles and that there was so little concern for human comfort. I saw the adversity the Spanish conquistadors had endured, and I wondered why they'd been driven so far afield from their homes in Spain. Then my father was hired as a ship pilot in the Panama Canal Zone, which was great for us because it was the first time we could all live together as a family. It was difficult to get to Panama back in 1964. Uh, first, we drove to New Orleans, and that took a couple days. And then we took an ocean liner to Panama, and that took four days by sea even then. The ship was named the SS Cristobal, named for Christopher Columbus. One day soon after we arrived, as we were exploring Panama, uh, we drove one day through the jungles of the Isthmus and out to the Caribbean coast. 
and we arrived at a fortress that, amazingly enough, was a mirror image or a very close approximation of the castle I had seen in St. Augustine, 1,500 miles away. It had the same thick walls, the same cannons pointed out to the sea, the same minimal concern for human comfort. I was amazed that they had duplicated so far away. It had just taken us days to get there with modern technology. Imagine going on a small sailing ship and then seeking to create something, a defensive structure, just the same as that. I began to realize how vast the Spanish Empire was and how powerful. And it had a particular significance to me because I was a child of the American Empire at that time, which was then at its apex. And it reminded me constantly that even awesome power can be fleeting. I graduated from Cristobal Intermediate School, again, Christopher Columbus, and then I graduated from Balboa High School, named for the Spaniard Vasco Nunez de Balboa, the first European to see the Pacific Ocean from the east. That was 500 years ago. Our home during the time that we lived on the Atlantic side of the Isthmus was at the entrance of the port of Cristobal, and I used to like to go out and read, I think, all uh, avid readers as young people find a kind of a secret special place to read, and I like to go out and sit by on the seawall overlooking the Caribbean um, and um, often sort of dream about the, the past and sailing ships and, in fact, realize that Christopher Columbus had come exactly along that coast back in 1502 um, when he was on his fourth voyage of discovery and still hoping desperately to bring back good news for his sponsor, Queen, Elizabeth, Queen Isabella of Castile. So I'd look out at the sea, I'd imagine him there. I sort of got in his head a little bit, how he was nervous in declining health talking to Native Americans about the gold they said was buried in the ground in Panama, which it was, and how there was a great sea not far away, and of course there was, the Pacific Ocean. And I wondered about Queen Isabella and what had inspired her to send to Columbus. I was very interested in this whole period of time, so I read a lot of the histories of the conquistadors. I read a lot about the annihilation of the Native Americans. I read the writings of the Indian rights advocate Bartolome de las Casas. I read the stories about the Inquisition, about the Reconquest, about the expulsion of the Jews, and the many, many histories of Christopher Columbus. And I was always looking for an explanation of a person who played a particularly key role in that, and that was Queen Isabella. And in all these accounts, she was typically only a small mention. These thoughts persisted. We traveled to South America once on a cruise, and we visited Buenaventura, Colombia, Lima, Peru, Santiago de Chile. Do you see a trend? <laughs> My childhood ended, and the United States decided to return the Canal Zone to Panama. We Zonians all had to leave, and I went to live on the mainland United States for the first time in many years. And everywhere I went, I saw more signs of Isabella's possessions in the New World. I went to California, and there I found San Francisco, San Jose, San Clemente, San Luis Obispo, Los Angeles, and San Diego. I went to New Mexico, and you can't miss the Spanish influence, especially in Santa Fe. 
I went to Mexico, and well, it's Mexico and everything's in Spanish. Everywhere I went, I wondered about why the Spaniards had come, why they had gone so far to colonize the New World, and I wondered about Isabella. And I was amazed and I was a little embarrassed for my fellow Americans that so many of them seemed to have such a limited awareness of the immensity of the impact of Spanish culture on the Americas. At Penn State, I studied journalism and also Spanish history. I went for a semester to the University of Salamanca and where I uh, learned a lot more about Queen Isabella. Then one day I took a train from Madrid to Salamanca and it was back in the 70s when Spain had its very, very slow train system, which I'm sure a lot of you have took during that time. And there were, would be a lot of funny layovers at little towns. Spain was very poor. We had a layover in a, in a remote town called Madrigal de las Altas Torres. And we had about an hour and a half to wander around. And I remember thinking how poor it was, how the streets were still unpaved, how dusty it was. There were, you know, sort of shabby, poorly dressed children sort of playing in the dirt. And then I happened upon a brick wall in front of a rather unprepossessing building, and I saw a little plaque on the wall, and it said that Isabella had been born in that building in 1451. Eureka. I think back at that time when I was about 20 years old, I started to think about this because I thought, how could she come from that and influence all these other places in the world? It really is extraordinary. I went into journalism. I worked at the Washington Post for 20 years, and finally I got a chance to write a book, and that was my biography of Frances Perkins. And then from that I got the other contract, and that was for the book of Queen Isabella, and at last I had a chance to explore this fully. This is that book, and this is what I found. I start by showing you here now some pictures um, that I think will help to tell you some of the story and of what's in the book. Um, her life covers such a vast uh, scope and encompasses so much, it really isn't possible for me to touch on everything. Um, but I thought with some pictures and some maps, I could give you at least a good idea of it. So here we go. Uh, this is the Spain of Isabel's life. Um, you can see where Castile and Leon are. You can see to the left is Portugal. This is significant because Isabel is half Portuguese. Um, her uncle, great uncle, was Prince Henry the Navigator, and they were a family that was very interested in navigation. So she inherited that from the Portuguese side of the family. To the right here is Aragon, that is Ferdinand's empire. Um, and in fact, his most important possession, you'll see in a few minutes, is the kingdom of Sicily. Um, the other point I want to make is that most of the maps we see of Spain um, always like to show England having higher prominence in the picture as sort of part of our cultural heritage here. But what I wanted to show you here is that Spain is only about eight miles from North Africa. Uh, this is the uh, Christian world in the year 600. You can see how Christianity was all through the Mediterranean world. Um, there are some crosses in the places that were the main Christian centers, Rome, Constantinople, Antioch, Jerusalem, and Alexandria. 
Here is the Islamic world in the year 1750. You see that Alexander, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Antioch have fallen to the Muslims, and the last remaining Christian cities uh, centers are Rome and Constantinople. You can see how very quickly the Islamic uh, uh, world grew, how very successful that faith was in spreading very quickly. This is Europe at the time of Isabella, and I want to show you where uh, the, the first uh, title that Isabella and Ferdinand had was that they were king and queen of Sicily. Again, you can see how close they were to North Africa and their sense that an invasion from North Africa or the Ottoman Empire could come very easily into Europe through that. Here is a picture of Isabella. Um, she's reading in what I presume to be a Bible there. Um, she is the uh, woman with the long reddish blonde hair. These are a few of Isabella's childhood homes. This is the way in which Isabel grew up. Um, there were many times during the history of Spain um, between 711 and 1492 that there was times of peaceful coexistence between the religions, um, but the uh, country of which Isabel was the queen is Castile. It's named that way for the castles that proliferated all over the landscape. There were even far more castles in Isabel's lifetime, um, not just made of stone, uh, but also made of wood. And I want to show you that this was a place that was not a particularly peaceful and harmonious place. It was a place where a lot of people lived in fear of their lives. This will help to give you a sense of Isabel's uh, perception of herself in history. This is the throne room in Segovia. The niches around the top are Isabel's, the people Isabel believes to be her ancestors going back to the 700s, um, the first one being Palayo, who had uh, been um, the first uh, Christian soldier who had successfully fought the Moors um, when they invaded and took over all of Spain in 711. So she views herself as the inheritor of the mantle of a person, of a family that had been fighting the Muslims for 24 generations. This is uh, Ferdinand and Isabella at their marriage. She was 18, he was 17, they eloped. He dressed up, her, her, her brother forbade her from this marriage. He dressed up as a mule driver and snuck in from Aragon and they eloped. This is her daughter, Catherine of Aragon. Isabel's child, who was believed by people who knew them to be most like Isabel. Um, this also goes far to explain to you what happened with Henry VIII. One of the reasons Henry was afraid to actually kill Catherine of Aragon was because she was so much like her mother. Uh, these are uh, other children of Isabel, Juana uh, and her husband Felipe. Um, they call this uh, young woman Juana La Loca. Juana the crazy, uh, for, uh, Felipe, her husband, had quite a wandering eye, um, and that made her 
very, very jealous. It was a very difficult marriage. Um, suffice to say, I don't think she was crazy, but she probably was really, really angry. Now, this was a picture that I found in the Biblioteca Nacional in, in Spain, and I'd been sort of struggling to put all this into context. How can somebody who in one sense, and Isabel was well-educated and intelligent, in some ways open-minded and adventurous, also be so closed-minded and intolerant? Um, one of the, uh, and, I, and I saw it in researching this book, to try to place, to try to put that, to put those two conflicting ideas together. And when I saw this painting, which is actually uh, on the wall of a monastery in along the Santiago de Compostela Trail, I realized um, that you could learn a lot about Isabel. Um, she's cowering there under Mary's arm. Mary is holding arrows. Um, there's demons dancing overhead. It's hard to tell if they're bringing books or taking them away. Um, but there's no question that this is a woman who is terrified for herself and for her family. They really seem to be sort of huddling under there. I'd never seen any picture in Europe of royal family with demons. Um, this is why she was afraid. Um, this is the expanding empire of the Ottoman Turks. Once people went under the Ottoman Empire, a lot of them had very nice lives. There was tolerance and coexistence as long as, uh, as, long as the Ottoman rule was accepted. Um, but this didn't happen easily. It happened with many, many battles that were fought over hundreds of years. Um, and people in Europe were terrified of the Ottoman Turks. Um, this is one of the reasons that they were afraid of the Ottoman Turks. His name is Mehmet, Mehmet the Conqueror. Um, and he has been estimated to have killed 29,000 people a year during his lifetime. Uh, here is a scene painted around that time that shows an attack by the Ottoman Turks. Um, there's a woman here being seized and enslaved. Um, we know she's a noble woman because she's wearing a silk dress, and it's red silk, which was a very expensive dye at that time, and she's clearly being dragged off into captivity. Uh, Isabel became convinced that the only way she could keep the Ottoman Turks from conquering Spain was if she... Uh, turned to absolute war against them and against the Moors uh, who were living in the south of Spain and to whom, of course, by this time, this was their home of 700 years. So at this point, you have a death struggle over who has a right to a piece of land. Isabel conducted the battle from this fortress in Cordoba. She went to war with her children she took her children to battle with her. They fought for 10 years um, before they succeeded in reconquering Granada. This is the city of Ronda. This is one of the cities that needed to be conquered um, to complete the reconquest. I, I do this to show you really how extraordinary these battles were. They did it in many cases by siege warfare. Um, they did it by bribing local officials. Um, to give up, and they did it by um, sheer persistence, being willing to stay forever 
until they won. Um, Isabel never thought that it would take 10 full years to complete the reconquest. Um, so um, early on, she began to have some scenes um, uh, sculpted in, st in, in wood, and they're in the choir stall in the cathedral in Toledo, if any of you have been there. Um, initially, she ordered 20 of these choir stall seats to show um, uh, the battles. Um, then she ordered 20 more, because there were 20 more battles, and ultimately there were 54. Um, they show things that she considered to be the most important turning points of the war. I show you this one in particular because it shows um, this, the uh, Castilians besieging a Moorish town, city. It shows how they set up with tents outside. This is a suicide attack um, by a Muslim who thought that the couple inside the tent were Ferdinand and Isabel. Um, he, they were not. It was Isabel's friend and her cousin. But it was a very interesting, vivid scene that I thought I'd share. Um, these are the chains uh, on the wall here in um, San Juan de los Reyes in Toledo. Isabel built this church to celebrate the victory. Um, and she had the chains that held the Christian slaves mounted on the wall uh, outside the cathedral so that people would know uh, why they had gone to war. Um, this is the beautiful city of Granada. It's the capital city of the Kingdom of Granada. Um, this was the last of the cities to be conquered. And it's extraordinarily beautiful. It was breathtaking to the Castilians when they got there, too. And it really uh, remains one of the most beautiful cities in Spain and really a wonderful example of the times in Spanish history when people did live in coexistence and shared uh, their talents and gifts artistically um, in literature, in politics, and science. Um, this is uh, when uh, Boabdil uh, finally um, surrendered to Ferdinand and Isabel. It's an 18th century depiction of how that happened. Um, here is a picture from the choir stall in Granada. And when Isabel first conquered the Moors, she promised them that they would have a right to continue to practice their own religion. That was untrue. Within a few years, everyone was forced to convert to Christianity. And here you see some Muslim women being forcibly converted to Christianity by priests. You can see their mournful faces and their sense of loss. Um, this is a 19th century painting of the expulsion of the Jews. Um, I. Uh, uh, Isabel essentially told Jews in Spain that they had to be uh, wholehearted Roman Catholics or they had to leave. Um, people who converted but who only pretended to convert uh, who, or who were believed to have only convert were subject to the penalty that was common at that time for heresy, which was burning at the stake. 
between 1,000 and 2,000 people in Spain were burned at the stake. About 80,000 Jews had to make the decision about what to do, whether to leave or not. Um, Isabel was completely um, uh, obstinate about that. Um, here we have um, a Jewish leader, Abravanel, Don, Don Isaac Abravanel, begging to be allowed to stay, and their stony faces, as they say now. Uh, this is Isabel's confessor, uh, Hernan de Talavera. He was a converso himself of Jewish descent, but a devout Christian. She and he were very uh, close. Uh, she relied very much on his judgment. He became the uh, Archbishop of Granada after she conquered, um, after she completed the reconquest. Um, what she had set in motion with the Inquisition was so horrible, though, and so out of control, and had become such an, an, a method of political, effective method of political control, that Talavera himself came under the control of the Inquisition. And in, the, in his 80s, he was beaten, was stripped and beaten, and uh, driven through the streets of, uh, of Granada, uh, and died soon afterwards. Um, so you can see how this became just a very vicious tool of political oppression. The Inquisition survived in Spain for 300 years. Christopher Columbus. Uh, many people know about the four voyages of Christopher Columbus, and there's been a lot of great scholarship on, on Columbus over the years and the impact he's had, he had on the Americas. Um, but I'm very proud of this particular map because we had to create it ourselves. Um, what's actually really uh, a surprise here is that uh, Isabel actually sponsored nine separate expeditions to the New World, four by Columbus, but also uh, five more, including Juan de la Cosa, Rodrigo de Pestidas, and Alonso de Ojeda. Um, you can see all the parts of um, of, of the new world that they explored. Um, it's also sometimes said, did, did they understand what they found? Absolutely. Um, she immediately understood what they found. As soon as uh, Columbus got back to Portugal and sent a message, and oddly he went into Portugal first, uh, and sent a message to her saying that he had gotten, found new lands and was back, um, she immediately sent fast horsemen to her subject, Rodrigo Borgia, Pope Alexander VI, and asked him to give her all those lands as her personal possession. So all the Americas became the personal possession of the Kingdom of Castile. To celebrate all these victories, they commissioned a beautiful little building at the Vatican called the Tempietto. The, ar uh, the architect Bramante did it. New scholarship has shown that, uh, that uh, it was paid for by Ferdinand and Isabel. Um, it's kind of an interesting thing, and I include this because it's fascinating, and it's a really good illustration of the point I wanted to make at the beginning, that in Isabella you have a combination of a person who is simultaneously open-minded to new architectural and artistic styles, and also close-minded and intolerant. Things don't always 
go in the simple way that we sometimes like to think. Uh, this is a statue of Queen Isabella. It's outside the organization of, Washington, of uh, American states in Washington, D.C. It's a monument to the woman that they consider the mother of all their shared cultures. And here are the countries that are members and that together proclaim that shared heritage. Argentina, the Bahamas, Barbados, Bolivia, Brazil, to some extent, Canada, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, Cuba, the Dominican Republic, Ecuador, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Jamaica, Mexico, Nicaragua, Panama, Paraguay, Peru, Uruguay, Venezuela, and the United States. Not a member of the Organization of, Mer of American States, but a cultural brother is the Philippines, also a Spanish colony for many years. Isabella exported her culture everywhere. Today, because Isabella lived, and I've told you how she came from that tiny little town in Madrigal de los Altos Torres, some 40 million people on the planet speak Spanish as their native language. It's the second most common language on the planet after Mandarin. About two billion are Christian, that makes it the world's largest religion. And much of that came from Isabella's fervent zeal to spread the faith. The world is much different because she lived. And I'm happy to take your questions.